0: We are talking through the book of Philippians, and we are learning a lot about relationships. You might not think about going to a 2,000-year-old book and finding things out relevant for us today. I pray that you will lean in, dive in, and that you will see the absolute relevance of this uh, ancient book that Paul wrote to this little city, or this city, Roman city, that he was pouring, investing a lot of his time. And about 15 years after investing, he was in Rome, and uh, he's writing back. To this this church and so much of what he's writing about is dealing with relationships so much about life the good the bad and the ugly if you if you look at it closely it ties to relationships. Somebody broke a promise to you. Somebody gave a promise to you. Somebody fulfilled a promise to you. Uh, you made a promise to someone else. You couldn't keep that promise. There's so many things about relationships that, 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 that tie in. And Sometimes we get into these relationship triangles, and they're not healthy, and they become toxic, and how do we get out of it, or how do we fix it, or how can we be a part of the solution and not just the critic to the problem, and we want to talk about that. I mean, have you ever had, and don't raise your hand, please, uh, because the answer is yes. Uh, Have you ever had a toxic relationship, an unhealthy relationship, one that that actually pulled life from you, took life from you, didn't add life to you, didn't add... the energy, the, the joy, the, the, the sustainable life that you should have. And, and I think most of us have had those, whether it's childhood or youth or young adults, and some of you are still young adults or older adults or whatever, on the job or in a relationship. Uh, it could be in a church even. Churches have struggled with healthy and unhealthy relationships. Why? Because there's people involved. Anytime you find people, you're going to find relationships. if you find relationships, you're going to find unhealthy people and you're going to find healthy people. And I'm not going to pretend to say that I'm always the healthy one, okay? Let's go like this. If there's always a problem in all of your relationships, you might want to look for the common denominator in the relationships. It's probably you. So you might want to lean in and think about how am I contributing to the, the toxicity of my relationships. The Bible has a lot to say about it, about relationships. Relationships, again, where people are involved, there are relationships. And you go to the Scriptures, you go to Proverbs especially, you can find verse after verse after verse, chapter after chapter, dealing with relationships. You know, here's what a healthy relationship will do to you. Here's what a bad relationship will do to you. And, and, and Paul even said this, good, bad company corrupts good morals. What we are aiming at is healthy, life-giving relationships that increase and not diminish the joy out of our life. Now, think about your relationships. How many relationships do you have? How many friends do you have out there? Well, you could open up your phone right now and look and say, okay, I've got this many Facebook friends. That's how many friends. That's one of the ways to quantify uh, how many relationships that you have out there. But now, how many of those so we'll just take that that address book, that little black book in your life. So of that of that little thing called Facebook, how many of those are friends that will be with you in times of crisis? You heard, you heard Andrew share a very deep. Part of his life, and I think it's one of the things that's given Andrew such a deep heart, and even at his age, even though he's a year older today. So you'd be sure to ha- tell him happy birthday. But uh, the, the 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 thing is, these relationships that are in our life, um, they're 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 sometimes not good, and sometimes they're they're good. And so, how many of your Facebook friends would you count as crisis friends? Friends that you would be with you during the dark day of your life. Friends that would come in and not just give you an emoji uh, whenever you are having one of those seasons, those epic moments uh, of darkness. Would be at your doorstep, would physically leave and be with you during that time. Oh, well... uh, Facebook's been around long enough that there's enough research out there being being done on the social media phenomena uh, of social, of all the different social medias. But Oxford University did a study and asked people of your, if you took 105, actually why they chose 105, I don't know, but 105 of your Facebook friends, how many of your friends would be crisis friends. People that would be with you during a crisis. And they measured them, counted them, and they came up with four out of 105. So just a handful of people that will be with you, walk with you through the darkest seasons of your life. Paul writes to the church of Philippi, to the believers of Philippi, during a dark, divisive, broken season, season of their life. When they are, um, when there's a lot of infighting. He's writing this letter and you can read it. It's oozing with joy and excitement and love and rejoicing. And he's very excited to reconnect with them and wants to be with them. And it's a thank you letter, but it's also a letter admonishing them Hey, your relationships are pretty fractured right now. There's division. There's lines being drawn. There's sides being taken. There's alliances being made. And you've got to stop this. And they literally, you don't even know who he's talking about. You just kind of catch the width and the undersurface of it until you come to the last chapter of the book. In chapter 4, verse 2, he literally names the people, the ringleaders, if you will. He says, I plead to Judea and plead to Syntyche. So that was a, I'm sure Melvin was really proud of those names when she gave them out. Uh, To be of the same mind in the Lord. I like that statement. Because you're going to hear that statement again, to be of the same mind. Quit this infighting, quit this backbiting, quit this gossiping, quit this politi- uh, making everything political. Quit d- causing division and drawing lines apart. And listen, have the same mind. Now notice this last phrase, in the Lord. That's a kind of a unique phrase. Because it's not just have the same mind, hey, y'all get along. Remember when you were brothers and sisters and you used to fight and you'd say your mother would make you hold hands and hug and kiss each other and say I'm sorry and you you were doing it physically but you couldn't stand the person on the other side? Well, it's not just go through the motions and be of the same mind, but it's literally in the Lord as if the Lord is a secret ingredient, a secret sauce, a secret formula to making healthy relationships. And so my question to you and all of us in our relationships that we might consider a little toxic, a little broken, a little fractured, how many of those would we say the Lord is a part of those, speaking into those, directing us, healthy, bringing health back into them? Because whenever the Lord's a part of them, then we can become of one mind. And that's what I'm really going to point to today is that A healthy, the healthiest, vibrant, most vibrant form of relationship is the one in which the Lord is a part of that relationship. And and you go back to chapter 1, verse 27, where we kind of launch in today. It says, and this is, is again, Paul's desire that I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. Notice he said before, one mind. Now he's saying one spirit. We're going to talk about those two in a moment with one mind. He says the one mind again, striving side by side in the faith of the gospel. So here he is. He says, I want to hear, I want, I want the rumor mill. I want the letters to come. I want the reputation to come that you all, you are getting along, but you're not just getting along. You're actually getting along and moving forward. You're moving the ball down the field. You're about the mission of God. You're about the gospel, of which the very first reason I went to Philippi, Paul said in Acts 16, was because of the gospel. So he said, I want you to be about the gospel. I want you to be united about the gospel. And and I want you working together for the gospel. And it's actually a compound word here. And on the front of this word, on the front of this Greek word, is this word sin. It's a little sin word, which is like we would not S-I-N, uh, but the, uh, this, it's a compound word like we would have in the English, like we would like cooperation or co-laborer, somebody who is with you in the work. Well, he's saying here, I want us striving together side by side. I want us working together side by side. The actually last part of that word is athleo, which is the word that we get English, athletics, or athlete. So he's saying, I want you to strive, work together, side by side, co-laboring in this together so that we're moving the gospel forward into what God's called us about. He calls us together for unity. Satan has been dividing and conquering homes, churches, businesses, teams for years and years and years about the mission of God. Listen, here's the thing. If we're all rowing the boat, it's really hard to rock the boat. If we're all in here paddling together and going in the same direction, it's really hard to tip the boat over. And unity is so important. It's one of those major themes even in in Jesus' life in ministry. He is just dealing with some of the most self-centered disciples, literally. you got to go back and read the story. But in John chapter 17, right before he hands the baton off, goes to the cross and dies and and resurrects from the dead and then leaves his ministry to these 12 disciples, he prays for them. And his prayer, true Lord's prayer, is, Father, make them one like we are one in John 17. Make them one just like we're one. I want them to be united. Another time in Matthew chapter 5, the only recorded message of Jesus, he even talks about it. Hey, if you're at the altar and you're giving your offering and and you find or you remember that your brother has something against you, now notice this. Your brother has something against you. You don't necessarily have something against your brother, but your brother has something against you. You're to leave your offering. Hold it. He's the one who has something against me. He needs to come to me. No, no, no. Your brother has something against you. You leave your offering. You make it a priority to go and reconcile as much as you can with that person. You be reconciled to that person so that then you can come back and give your offering. He was putting it such a high priority that unity and oneness and, and reconciliation would be a part of who we are. That unity and oneness would be would mark our relationships and who we are. Now, sometimes you can't reconcile, but you're going to do everything in your power to reconcile. You're going to do everything you can. You're not going to enable, but you're going to help. Do everything you can. And even this, Matthew chapter five, verse nine, in the front part of the message, he said this. He said that blessed are the peacemakers. Not the peacekeepers, but those who are able to go into a dark situation, into a divisive situation, and create peace and make peace. One of Paul's mottos, I'm just giving you a survey of verses now. Paul's mottos was in Romans chapter 12. If it's possible, if it's, if it's capable, if it's possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. Now, sometimes it's not possible. I realize that. We have relationships out there that you can't. But as far as it is possible for you, you're going to do everything in your power to bring peace to the relationship, not turmoil. You're not going to keep stoking the fires. You're going to do everything in your power to be at peace with them. And so, again, relationships are a two-way street. So here's, what, here's the deal today, Okay. When I talk about toxic relationships, when I talk about relationships that are broken and fractured, when I talk about, do you just run from them? Do you just go away from them? What about our role in making healthy relationships? And some of y'all were in a car with somebody just about 10 minutes ago on your way to church, and you're already thinking, I know who I need to make peace with. But I'm not going to be the first one to say, I'm sorry. Because I got some axes to grind and I got some things to, uh, to pick apart. And I, you know, so you know what I'm talking about. Those things happen. And here's what I'm praying is that you will find deeper joy in being at peace than satisfaction in being right. I'm right and they're wrong. Okay. But I pray you'll find deeper joy... In being at peace, than satisfaction in being right. Life principle we're operating this entire series off of, and everything that centers around this, is that joy rises above our circumstances, it flows deeper than our pain. Joy rises above our circumstances, falls deeper than our pain. Basically, that means that joy, I pray to God, that you are experiencing your relationships, that you're experiencing in your own personal life, is so deep and so wide and so encompassing that you will be able to overcome. Now, let's take our Bibles and let's look at our focal passage today in Acts, excuse me, in Acts, in Philippians chapter 2. We're going to look at four verses. Now, I'm going to just tell you right now, these were probably some of the more difficult verses for me to study. In a long time. Because whenever you're, 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 you're studying the Scriptures, especially the New Testament, one of the best ways to study the, the language, uh, the study of the, uh, the Scriptures, is to go into, and this is just a little principle for you on your own, so go in and find the verbs, because the Greek language is built around the verb. And the verb will then give you everything else that you need to know how you're going to respond to the passage. The problem is, is we're looking at a verbless passage of Scripture, there's one verb in four verses. It's so these it's this there's these poetic statements that are all clumped together, three ver- three uh, strophes is what they call them, and there's these these poetic clumps of scripture and they're all lumped together. They're using words that are not used anywhere else in the Greek language. It's quite a difficult passage to study. And what he's talking about here, he didn't have the verb because the verb is the action. This is what you're supposed to go do. It's more of this. Hey, because you have a relationship with Christ back here, there's going to be a residual outcome of that. There's going to be some, uh, some rollout, some effects, some, some, something that's going to happen and because of that. Because of the action that happened back here, this is what happens. And that's what we're going to focus on is what happens in our relationships Because we have a personal relationship with Christ. If you don't have a personal relationship with Christ, then you may not identify with these next statements. If you have a personal relationship with Christ, the quality of your relationships should be better than anywhere else on the planet because of this. Let's look at our passage and hopefully it will make sense as we get into this. Verse verse 1, chapter 2. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit... Any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy. That's the one time there's a verb. And it's an aorist tense. It's a a point in time kind of experience. And and he's saying it. Make my joy what it should be. Again, I told you about joy and relationships. He said, make my joy complete being of the same mind, having the same love, being full, uh, in full accord with one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not on, out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. He gives us rules of engagement. He says, because you have this relationship with Christ, here are some ways that we should be relating to other people. So let's forget that other person that's not here and that's not in the room, that you can't stand, that you wish a thousand fleas would infest their, their armpits. That, that person, let's not talk about them. Let's talk about you and let's talk about me and how I fit into the solution, into the brokenness of the relationship. And I'm going to look at it from this point of view. There's a heart element, there's a head element, and then there is a hand element. There's a heart element because it's, it, it, it penetrates deep into our heart and it really originates from our heart. But then it moves to our mind and how we think and see and how we, we interact with each other. But really, I think if you come to the last part with the hand element, that's one of the keys to the whole thing. So you can't separate it out. So in the rules of engagement, let's talk about your heart. Number one, you need to lead with your heart. But let me tell you this, because of Jeremiah chapter, uh, I believe it's uh, chapter 18, it talks about this, that the heart of man is deceitful and desperately wicked. Don't lead from that heart. Lead from the transformed heart. Lead from the new heart in Christ. That's why this is such an important uh, caveat to it, that these are the results of being in a relationship with Christ, that because you have a relationship with Christ, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort uh, of love, from love, if there's any participation in the Spirit, if there's any affection, if there's any sympathy, and what you could do is you could look at that and say, well, if and if and if and if, well, really... It's trying to communicate sense. Because since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is comfort from love, since there is participation of the Spirit, that means the presence of the Spirit of God is in the relationship, since there is affection and sympathy. Notice the words, notice the heart level words. We're not just talking about emotional words, but we're talking about heart level. True encouragement comes from Christ. True comfort comes from love. Where does love come from? It comes from a heart. True awareness of the Spirit of God and participation of the Spirit of God in your relationship. where does that come from? It comes from a relationship with Christ, in the heart. You're born again in the heart, the essence of what we talk about, not the organ, but the essence of who we are. In fact, if you go to that last phrase, it says affection and sympathy. That word affection is literally the word bowels. But in American culture, we don't talk about our bowels being moved in a relationship. It's not a good thing. You make my liver quiver. Uh, you move my bowels, okay? That will not get it on a Hallmark hallmark card. So rightfully so, they put it affections. The deep-seatedness of who we are, this comfort of love, this encouragement from Christ, this affection, this sympathy. Notice the heart level of this. If you are entering into relationships and your relationships are only at a surface level, if your relationships are not at a heart level, a transformed heart level, you are missing it. It's the softer side of the relationship. Encouragement, comfort, love, the Spirit. And when those are working inside of us, when those are in play, then the good can come of this. Tremendous things can come of this. Aristotle, you go back and understand, again, we're looking at a Greek culture, a Roman culture here. You go back and understand Aristotle and what he talked about relationships. He talked about in the Greek culture there were three levels of relationships. There was the, there was the kind of, uh, I call it the partner relationship, where, hey, I know you, you know me. Hey, I need a job. Hey, do you know somebody who needs a job? And, hey, I know, you know, I can put you down as a reference kind of relationship. Those kind of relationships do good for us kind of on a, on a, on a, on a personal uh, level. The second level in the Greek culture of relationship was one that was a pleasant relationship, not a partnership relationship, more of a pleasant relationship. Hey, I enjoyed you. I, I want to get together. Let's spend vacation together. Let's go on a trip together. Hey, we're going to stay in contact with each other. We're, we're texting each other. We're part of a group text together. We're going to stay in touch with each other. I'm going to be there for you. You're going to be there for me kind of thing. Those are, those, are, those are the kind of relationships, and those are the kind that we kind of think of when we think of relationships. But in the Greek culture, there was another level of relationship. And I think it's really where Paul was going with this. There's What, what, what the writer talked about, Tom Smith, in his book Raw Spirituality, he said, he said there is a goodness level of relationship where you go and you are able to speak truth into their life and they're able to speak truth into your life. They're able to see your motives and call you out on your motives. They're able to say, hey, you know what? You probably shouldn't have blown it up with your kids like that. Or, hey, you know what? Have you ever thought about going and just saying, I'm sorry? And you don't take offense to it. The, the goodness of those relationships, those are special relationships. Those don't happen because you found a friend on Facebook and you like their cat photo. Okay, that's not that level of relationship. Okay, the relationship that we're talking about is a heart deep, deep inside your bowels relationship, if you will. Deep inside who you are as a person kind of relationship. That's the kind that we want to encourage, that we want to stimulate, that we want to promote. That's why we say we exist as a church to promote transformative relationship with one another. Now, some might look at that and go, okay, well, that's kind of redundant. Transformative relationships, transformative community with one another. What's that? What's that mean? This whole transformative community with one another thing is actually the one another is probably more descriptive than the community side of it. The community, the one another side of it is where that's really what deep relationships should look like. The one another's is what we need to be about. The one another is what the Scripture talks about 55 different times that we should be about in our relationships. The one another's. It's in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13, when he says, "...encourage one another daily." Encourage one another daily. That means you're going to have to be in a one another relationship with somebody and you're going to have to be on a consistent basis and it's not some far off friend. It's somebody close that you're going to be in their life every day and they're going to be in your life every day or pretty consistently at least. Galatians chapter 6 verse 2 says, bear one another's burdens, get underneath there, help them when they can't carry the load of their life at that moment, be the friend who shows up on their door face uh, at 2 a.m. I've asked this question before, who's your 2 a.m. friend that you could call and you wouldn't feel like you're imposing on them? And who are you a 2 a.m. friend to? that you will go out of your way to bear their burdens. Confess your sins one to another, it says in James chapter 5, verse 16. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. When's the last time you spent a long time praying for a friend who was off the rails? And if they felt comfortable enough to come to you and say, listen, I may have done something a little wrong. No, I've done something wrong. And you were able to walk with him through it. This one another relationships are big. I had that question asked of me a couple of years ago. Mike, who do you do one another's with? And I couldn't name anybody. Who who bears your burdens? And who do you help bear their burdens? And who do you confess your sins to? And they confess their sins to. See, those are deep heart level relationships. That's what I'm saying. Listen, we don't need Facebook friends. We don't need more Facebook friends. What we need is friends who will bring encouragement, sympathy, affection, the Spirit of God into the relationship. And when you have that, you have a beautiful relationship in the making because it's starting at the heart level. A Russian proverb says it like this. When you meet a man, you judge him by his clothes. When you leave a man, you judge him by his heart. How well do people see your heart when they get into relationships with you? Number two, with your head. This is where we align our minds. There's an alignment here. And then you'll notice that throughout the book of Philippians, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 4, three of the four chapters of the book of Philippians, he calls us to align our minds, to have the same mind. And even sometimes he does it multiple times in the same verse. And so he, here, here's one in verse 2. He says, one mind, one love, one accord with one mind again full accord with one mind again. Same mind, same love, full accord with one mind. Can you bring that to your relationship? Can you bring that to the table? The New International Version says it like this. It says that we would be of one spirit and of one mind. See, he's not talking about something here in the, in the form of some kind of conformity. He's talking about unity. Conformity, outside pressure is trying to make you look a certain way. Unity happens from the inside and works its way out. When our soul and our mind are aligned, there's unity. It's not just whip your kids into shape and make them toe the line. It's not play the man card in the marriage relationship. Say, hey, this is the time to submit. Not That doesn't work. You might get conformity, but you will not get unity. You might get people to step in line. No. What we want is we're wanting unity. This is where it becomes mystical. This is where it becomes spiritual. Yes, spiritual. Because it's going to have to originate in the heart, but it moves to the head. And now our minds and our spirits are aligned with one another. Whenever that happens, unity of the mind and of the soul, it will bring energy, energy, It will bring clarity, and it will bring harmony to a relationship. I can think about examples, multiple examples in my own life. I can think about about the church and the unity that is needed inside the church. And so many churches can get divided. And I can give you example after example, and I don't have time for it, of how our church, we have fought to keep the unity. It sounds like an oxymoron, right? Fight to keep unity. We have. We have guarded the unity of our church. So that we would be united around a common mission. That's why we restate it. That's why we come back to it. That's why we vet things out through it. And our trustees and our deacons, I can tell you about our trustees, we have only voted on one budget in 16 years. One budget. Because there was a couple of the trustees that couldn't get on the same page about eight years ago. But the rest of the time, we've had absolute unanimous consent at every budget we've ever brought to the church. We walk out of there, we don't have to take a vote. Everyone is for it. That takes more work. That takes more patience, more prayerful considerations. That takes more understanding on the other person. But it creates a forward motion, a forward energy versus a sideways energy. You can think about sideways energy in your own life. And It also brings clarity. I can remember uh, going to, to church camp and working at a church camp all summer Oh, one summer, I did it in both college and and, and in high school. And um, I was a lifeguard. And I remember every week we'd go to camp or every week we were at the camp. For seven weeks, a thousand students would come through the camp. And the the camp director would stand up on the very first day one year. And he read Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 to verse 4. Next Monday we come along, Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 to verse 4. this doesn't even make sense. This is not some kind of cool youth devotional that you're giving here. But eventually I began to understand that what happens when there's unity, there is this clarity that comes. And he was praying over the camp every week that year that clarity would come, that unity would be there, that there would be a perspective that you wouldn't have any other way whenever you become one mind and one spirit. And you know what? On that very summer was the summer that God gave me the clarity to do what I have been doing for the past 26 years. Clarity. Unity will bring clarity. It will also bring harmony. The unity and the harmony in the home is a great example. When you got two type A people marrying each other like Lori and I, do you think there's always going to be unity? Do you think there's always going to be harmony? No. But we made a commitment a long time ago in our marriage relationship that we would not make any purchase. We would not make any big move. We would not make a vocational change. We would not do anything. In, I don't care what offer was on the table, the opportunity was out there, that until we were both completely aligned, where we could go at it 100% with all of our heart. I don't care how many opportunities. I'm not going to play the man card, submission card. No, no, no. We're going to align. There's going to be an alignment. When you have that, I'm talking about relationships, right? Harmony, clarity, energy comes when there's unity. Do you have that in your relationship? If you don't, you're going to have to work for it. It's going to be a head issue, but it's going to start in the heart, but it's going to move finally to the hands. We talk about the hands. We're talking about live, work, do what you do to bring joy to the other person do what you do to bring joy. Paul was appealed to them was, "Hey, would you make my joy complete by being of the same mind, being of the same spirit, having the same love? Would you do that?" He's appealing for them to do this. Paul then comes in at the end and he says, "Listen, you don't do things out of selfish ambition. You don't do things out of conceit. You do things out of humility." You do things out of a posture of humility. Now, I have to say this. In the Greek language, the word humility is never used in any other Greek text outside of the Scriptures, and what I'm referring to, outside of Scriptures that it is not in a degrading kind of form. I thought that was a little disheartening when I read that this week. It was always a master and a servant, and a servant and a master, that you would humble yourself under your mask. Like, that did not sound right. What's, what, what's the deal? What Jesus does in the New Testament, what Peter writes about in the New Testament, what Paul writes about in the New Testament, is he flips it on his head as, as humility is a good thing. As putting yourself under. In one time Peter said, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that he will exalt you in due time. Humility becomes a part of it. Look at this, he said, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Wow. Jesus just said this. He said, hey, love your neighbor as you love yourself, okay? Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Paul said, hey, count others as even more significant than yourself. Now I'm, I'm taking it to a new level where I'm now putting the other person in front of my interests and desires. Albert Schweitzer, a missionary, French missionary to Africa, as a physician said this, life becomes harder for us when we live for others. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. I'm not saying your flesh is not going to rear up. I'm not going to say you're not going to push it back, push it back, but it's the last statement, but it also becomes richer and happier. And what did I say? Joy becomes greater for you. Joy becomes greater for the other person when I live to make you more complete more joy-filled, more of what God desires you to be. I like the way the message puts it. He says, put yourself aside. Help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. This is how we should enter in our relationships. This is when Christ informs our relationships. You forget yourself long enough to lend a helping hand. I love the story of Millard Fuller who was a millionaire entrepreneur from Alabama, had this kind of southern twang of sorts, and um, he had made a lot of money. But he had gone to a church in Georgia one day and experienced, or had a relationship with, with Christ in America's Georgia at this church, and it totally transformed it where he began to see that, hey, I'm not just living for myself. I'm living for God. I can live to serve others. And he turns around and he had just, and I'm giving you a very fast track in seconds, what took years, I'm sure, to formulate and to become. But he just got this vision from God that every person on the planet deserves a decent place to live. Is that too much to ask? And oh, by the way, I've got millions of dollars. So how can I help make this happen? So he turns around and takes that challenge and starts Habitat for Humanity. And from Zaire, Africa, to all around the world, there have been decent, respectable homes built by people just so they can have a decent place to live. He was asked by an unbeliever uh, one day, because she just couldn't believe what he was doing to give away all of his money, why are you doing this, and all this kind of stuff. You've got you to become a Christian to get one of your houses. Is this kind of a bait-and-switch kind of thing? And this was his answer back to her, Ma'am, in his southern twang, We don't try to evangelize. You don't have to become a Christian to live in one of our houses or to help us build one. You don't have to be a Christian. But the fact is, the reason I do what I do And so many of our volunteers do what they do, is that we're being obedient to Jesus. Why do we at at Grace Point Church, why do we, why do we, we're going to be, we're helping out right now with a Habitat for Humanity. We have an entire week of construction that you can be a part of, you know, to be a part of helping build a, a Habitat house in our neighborhood. Yeah, we do a lot globally, but we do a lot right here at home. That's why we had foster parents not out on Friday night. That's why we had 60 plus volunteers and 60 plus children. We had one child for every volunteer, one volunteer for every child. Why do we do that? Because we just want to live obedient to Christ because that's what Jesus did. So therefore we want to be like Jesus. He rewrote humility and what it meant and what it looked like and what a difference it will make in our relationships. Why do we go to Africa to drill wells, 12 wells in 12 months? Because we just want to do like what jesus did and when we give a cup of cold water and, and Jesus' name it's like giving it to jesus and so let's just do that let's just live as best we can like jesus see what we call discipleship around here what does it mean to be a, a disciple of christ what does it mean it means when we're fully obedient multipliers following christ we're all investing in other people. We're all trying to pour ourselves in, but we're all looking at our lives and we're saying, Am I obedient in every single area of my life? Every single area of my life. Is it given over fully and completely to Christ? You think why would you bring Christ into all this? Okay. Now I say this till the very end. Here's your homework assignment. So we just read four verses, right? If you have your Bibles, you can look at verse five. Have this mind, everything that he just talked about in the first four verses, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's not that you'll have it, you have it. As a follower of Christ, I can literally live as an encouragement flow from my life. Sympathy and affection can flow from my life. I can live in different relationships differently and take out the toxicity. I can bring in life because I have everything I need in Christ Jesus. And if that's not good enough for you, read the next verses. This is your homework. Read the next verses because he's going to break it apart exactly exactly how Christ did it on this earth. He did the exact same thing that we're called to do. Are you a Christ follower? Are you a disciple? Are you fully obedient multiplier following Christ? Think about it.